Hello and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. My name is Rob. And my name is Trisha. And today we are going to be talking to you about dialectical materialism. Um, Our source, as you see at the bottom of your screen, is uh, the paper On Dialectics by Tom Big Warrior Watts. Um, Basically, we've had this on the back burner for a while because we wanted to try to, like, condense it down and give you a shorter piece on it. Um, But after much review, we've uh, decided that it was best to just read and discuss the paper. Because right. Tom already, right? Because Tom already did a a pretty good job of condensing it, and condensing it any more uh, would lose nuance, or you know, we don't want to lose sight of why we're talking about it. So, right so here goes nothing, but actually a lot. <laughs> it is. It is quite a lot. Um, Tom wrote this paper in 2019, so um, this this is um, things that we're diving into for a more updated context on the application of dialectical materialism, and he nails it, bringing it into current context here. Um, so, might as well dive right in. Uh, this is a quote from Frederick Ingalls. In Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific from 1880, the whole world, natural, historical, intellectual, is represented as a process, i.e., as in constant motion, change, transformation, development. And the attempt is made to trace out the internal connection that makes a continuous whole of all of this movement and development. Dialectical materialism has two parts. Well, I mean, that pretty self-explanatory, I guess. There's dialectics and materialism. Taking the second part first, materialism asserts that the material world actually exists and is real, and it exists independently of what we think about it. Our subjective views and opinions do not affect or influence material reality until we, as material beings, apply these ideas in practice. We can think about building a dam on a creek, and it makes no difference to the creek until we actually do it. In this way, ideas become a material force in the real world. Dialectics reflects the understanding that matter is in motion Nothing is standing still. Everything is in process of coming and going out of being. Moreover, everything exists as a unity of opposites, and it is the contradiction between these opposite aspects that determines a thing's motion and development. Opposites attract, and there is a unity between opposites. But there is also contradiction and struggle as each attempts to transform the other. Hot and cold are opposites. Pour some cold milk into a hot cup of coffee, and the cold milk will cool the coffee while the hot coffee warms up the milk. A hot fire warms the air in a cabin while the cold air outside just the air inside. Let the fire go out and it'll get cold inside. Who would have thought? The heat from right? the sun warms one side of the earth, but when we rotate around and it becomes night, the coldness of space cools the air on the ground until we rotate around again. At the poles, it stays cold, and as seasons change, we go from winter to summer because our planet's axis of rotation is tilted at an angle of uh, 23.5 degrees relative to our orbital plane. Thus, the outside factor of the sun's rays affects Earth uh, temperatures, but the land, the water, and the air heat and cool at different rates because of their internal contradictions as matter. Internal contradictions determine change while outside factors influence change. And give me a second. Sorry, I just went to scroll and it scrolled too far. <laughs> uh, water freezes at zero degrees centigrade, which is 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and boils at 100 degrees centigrade which is 112 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level that pressures. Um, 
On top of Mount Everest, water boils at 71 degrees Celsius or 160 degrees Fahrenheit. This is because of the change in atmospheric pressure. But the change in the freezing point is much less affected by the change in atmospheric pressure. Essentially, it does not matter if it is on top of Everest or Death Valley, freezing is at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Ice does not melt so quickly above its freezing point because as a solid, its internal properties are different than the liquid. Snow melts quicker than ice. Ice, being more solid, has different internal properties. The quantitative change in temperature gives, uh, gives rise to a qualitative change in the internal characteristics of water. Since water is a polar molecule, this means that there is a lot of forces of attraction. Also, because the hydrogen bonds in the water molecule require a lot of energy to break, water has a high boiling point, melting point, and uh, heat of vaporization, too. When water freezes, the, mo uh, the water molecules have slowed down enough that their attractions arrange them into fixed positions. Water molecules freeze in a hexagonal pattern, and the mo molecules are further apart than they were in liquid water. This is why pipes burst when the water inside them freezes, or beer cans, or soda cans, etc. Yep, because water expands when it's... <laughs> when water boils, water molecules are able to break the forces of attraction. When a liquid is heated, the particles are given more energy. They start to move faster and move further apart. At a certain temperature, the particles break free of one another and the liquid turns to gas. This is the boiling point. Lower air pressure allows this to happen at a lower temperature. But to break the bond between the high oxygen molecules, more energy is needed. This happens when you run an electric current through water. Electrolysis of water is the decomposition I'm sorry, decomposition of water into hydrogen and oxygen due to the past electric current through it. Pure water, however, has a very low conductivity. Pure water has an electrical conductivity about one millionth of that of seawater. The impurities in water make it more conductive. Um, and that's because a lot of those things like the salts and whatnot, there's an ionic factor that it lends the water. Anyway. Science, the study of nature, gives us the basis for deter uh, discerning the laws of dialectics. Remember, dialectics is a scientific process. Yes. Dialectics has its roots in ancient societies, the Chinese, Africans, Greeks, and um, indigenous to Turtle Island. Uh, we're all conscious to some degree of the workings of dialectics. Nonetheless, metaphysical thinking is deeply rooted in human culture. Belief in miracles and a poetic way of interpreting reality provide no small comfort to the human mind, however irrational it may be. All religions are based upon metaphysical idealism. It is quite easy to ascribe anything we are ignorant of to some metaphysical explanation. Science, therefore, has been opposed at every turn by the dogmatism of established metaphysical beliefs and prejudices, and this is no less true today. People will talk of, quote, godless communism in a perjurative way as if to brand it the work of the devil instead of the scientific method of analysis that it is. But then they forced Galileo to recant his view that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around as heresy because it contradicted the church doctrine. The Soviet Encyclopedia of Marxism. I'd like to add that to my bookshelf. Right. <laughs> the Soviet Encyclopedia of Marxism explains, dialectics is the method of reasoning which aims to understand things concretely in all their movement, change and interconnection with their opposite and contradictory sides in unity. I'll read two of these because they're short. Dialectics is opposed to the formal metaphysical mode of thought of ordinary understanding, which begins with a fixed definition of a thing according to its various attributes. For example, formal thought would explain a fish is something with no legs, which lives in the water. 
Darwin, however, considered fish dialectically. Some of the animals living in the water were not fish. Some of the fish had legs, but it was the genesis of all the animals as part of a whole interconnected process, which explained the nature of a fish. They came from something and are evolving into something else. Darwin went behind the appearance of fish to get to their essence. For ordinary understanding, there is no difference between the appearance of a thing and its essence, but for dialectics, the form and content of something can be quite contradictory. Parliamentary democracy being the prime example, uh, which, I mean, we might not call Congress a parliament, but essentially we operate the same as a parliamentary democracy. Uh, but anyway, to continue the quote, parliamentary democracy being the prime example, democracy in form, but dictatorship in content. Um, and for dialectics, things can be contradictory, not just in appearance, but in essence. For formal thinking, light must be either a wave or a particle, um, but the truth turned out to be dialectical. Light is both wave and particle. It says, see the principle of excluded middle, but I'm not sure. Are you still there? Ah, okay. I will just continue. Um, we are aware of countless ways of understanding the world, each of which makes the claim to be the absolute truth, which leads us all to think, after all, it's all relative. For dialectics, the truth is the whole picture of which each view is a more or less one-sided, partial aspect. And that's why, like with media, for example, if I'm trying to get anything close to the bigger picture, then... I check as many outlets as I can, which I mean, for American media, if you read one of them, you read all of them pretty much unless it's independent. But, um, you know, cross-referencing different international articles when possible. I had to mute for a moment and go give the mechanics a hand with something. I am back, though. <laughs> Sorry about that. Right on. No, it's fine. <laughs> We're at dialectics so, is concerned. Okay, I'll hop in. Uh, dialectics is concerned with truth and seeing things in their essence and interconnectedness, as well as their motion and development. The point being that to change reality, we must understand it and how it is changing and will change the foreseeable future. As communists, we believe that the masses are the makers of history. The point is to arm the masses with the ability to think dialectically, to manipulate them as bourgeois liberals and fascists do. Communist slogans and propaganda must therefore be truthful, and more, they must assist the masses in understanding things in a dialectical way. As the Encyclopedia of Marxism explains, an example of dialectical reasoning can be seen in Lenin's slogan, All Power to the Soviets spoken when the Soviets were against the Bolsheviks. Lenin understood, however, that the impasse could only be resolved by workers' power. Since the Soviets were organs of workers' power, a revolutionary initiative by the Bolsheviks would inevitably bring the Soviets to their side. The form of the Soviets during the time, led by Mensheviks and SRs, the right-wing socialists, Ed, um, they were at odds with the content of the Soviets as workers, peasants, and soldiers' councils. Some comrades couldn't at first grasp why Lenin would raise this slogan when the Bolsheviks were clearly outvoted in the Soviets. But he saw that by persistent agitation and exposure of the essentially sellout class collaborationist line of the opportunists, opportunists, sorry, the masses of workers, soldiers, and peasant deputies, and their constitu constituents, I can't talk, would come to see the correctness of Bolsheviks' ideological political line. Lenin had faith in the masses and the power of truth. And I just want to interject here to say that we cannot lose sight of that today. 
as as much as we might you know be tempted to lose faith in humanity we can't we have to have faith in the masses if this is going to go anywhere damn right Um, some people today do not understand why we persist in raising the slogan all power to the people when clearly the majority of not revolutionary minded and stuck in the rut of reformist or reactionary thinking but strategically dialectical analysis shows us that only the people in their messes can raise fundamental crises that we are in with this period. Um, the reformist may slow down and the reactionaries speed up these trends, but both are incapable of resolving them. We've seen Therefore, this. Look at how many decades of reformism have just been turned around and undone by whatever you know, people are taking by Reagan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when reform is done by the next administration, then they're not really invoking change. That's why I call that bullshit a cha-cha. Because you forward step, back step, forward step, back step, forward. You might go to the side. I don't fucking know. You're not really getting anywhere. <laughs> you're doing a lot yeah. of work. You're exerting yeah, well a lot said. of energy. Getting anywhere. Therefore, it is correct that we do all in our power to educate and arm the masses with the weapon of critical dialectical dialectical materialist thinking and call for them their full empowerment. To do otherwise would be tailing after the masses and worse, deceiving them. It might be more popular to jump on the Democratic Party bandwagon with the other opportunist leftists or to dumb down our politics, but we're not populists. We have, or we take to heart the teaching of the great African revolutionary uh, Amilcar Cabral, quote, hide nothing from the masses of our people. Tell no lies. Expose lies whenever they are told. Mask no difficulties, mistakes, or failures, and claim no easy victories. Contrast this with the fascist views on the parts of propaganda. Quote, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. Lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield people from the political, economic, and it thus becomes vitally important for the powers to express or to repress just, uh, for the truth, the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Look at what we've seen play out here in just the last couple of decades. This is still applicable today. This well, is what yeah, we are still- and, and I mean. Go for it. The entire Trump situation, I mean, honestly. Um, yeah, yeah. All the anti-vax shit, the QAnon shit, uh, the election conspiracy. I mean, we all know that the system's rigged, but it's not rigged on election day. It's rigged beforehand because you're only given the choice of a couple of counties to choose from. It really is your choice. The only opportunity to get into those positions of being that fucking puppet for autocracy is behind a paywall. You get rich as fuck to even get to be their puppet further with their bribes. Um, It's fucking ridiculous. It's never going to help us. Agreed. And and rant. But yeah, I mean, the, um, the big lie... And, uh, you know, the, the, the pandemic, I, I mean, <laughs> uh, right. Oh my God. One of my friends sent me that video for the pandemic and I literally watched the first five minutes of it and already had to write her back listing about 30 fucking things that were inaccurate or complete falsehoods, total bullshit being made up. And I was like, why did you think this was, I don't know, some kind of fucking epiphany? Like, oh my God, look at this. It's fucking stupid. Um, it ignores reality. But people bought into shit like that because 
some motherfuckers are really good at manipulation and making their lies look legit. And it's like, no, that's bullshit. And you should know better. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, our, our country is, you know, just goddamn near as right wing as the Nazis were. And it has been since the birth of neoliberalism in the early eighties. Right. Because that is fascist, whether you realize it or not. Neoliberalism leads to fascism. And of uh, Hitler himself. Oh, I get to read Read a Hitler Hitler quote. quote? Go for it. The The receptivity of the masses is very limited. Their intelligence is small, but their power of forgetting is enormous. In consequence of these facts... All effective propaganda must be limited to a very few points and must harp these or harp on these in slogans until the last member of the public understands what you want him to understand by your slogan. Uh, may I just interject, make America great again? It's all bullshit. And it's bad. And. Carlin. <laughs> Uh, and the leader of genius must have, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I just thought about Trump calling himself a genius, but anyway, the leader of genius <laughs> must have the ability to make different opponents appear as if they belong to one category. And if you wish the sympathy of the masses, you must tell them the crudest and most stupid things. Yep. Uh, and, right there kind of makes me wonder was directly referring to the propaganda that they put out that was anti-Semitic to try to, you know, push the people into acting these really fucking crude lies and thereby gain their support in a genocide. It's fucked up. Um, go back to the text here. Mao Zedong wrote, The masses are the real heroes, while we ourselves are often childish and ignorant, and without this understanding, it's impossible to acquire even the most rudimentary knowledge. We must firmly uphold the truth, and truth requires a clear-cut stand. We communists have always disdained to conceal our views. Newspapers run by our party and all the propaganda work of our party should be vivid, clear-cut, and sharp, and should never mutter and mumble. That is the militant style proper to us, the revolutionary proletariat. Since we want to teach the people to know the truth and arouse them to fight for their own emancipation, we need this militant style. A blunt knife draws no blood. In regards to their work, communists supply the principle of the mass line. Mao explains, we should go to the masses and learn from them. Synthesize their experience into, sorry, now my page jumped, into better articulated principles and methods. Then do propaganda amongst the masses and call upon them to put these principles and methods into practice so as to solve their problems and help them achieve liberation and happiness. In all the practical work of our party, all correct leadership is necessary from the masses to the masses. This means take the ideas of the masses, the scattered and unsystematic ideas, and concentrate them through study, turn them into concentrated and systematic ideas. Then go to the masses and propagate and explain these ideas until the masses embrace them as their own, hold fast to them, and translate them into action and test the correctness of these ideas in such action. Then once again, concentrate ideas from the masses and once go to the masses so that the ideas are persevered and carried on through. And so on, over and over again, in endless spiral, with the ideas becoming more correct, more vital, and richer each time. Sucks, or sucks, geez. Such is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Marxist theory of knowledge. Um, and so, that yeah, is what we're trying to do here of compiling these ideas that are 
spoken from the masses that are in frustration, like at, at our economic situation and what's going on right now with um, employers not paying people enough, not having good enough benefits, things like that. And look how many, you know, strikes that we've had going on. Well, we need to take those ideas and build on them and go, wait a minute, here is the solution for that. When you take those ideas and go here, here's an area where we need to fix this shit. Here's how to do it and put those ideas back out to the masses of here's the answer to your question. That's what we're trying to do here and get everybody on the same page as Mao was referring to and get the people to really absorb these ideas and go, you know what, this, this is the solution. And I mean, obviously we know that, um, dialectical materialists can and do solve problems. And, um, we we can never we can never ignore that. Uh, right. That's that's exactly why when people with such a mindset start actually organizing and actually solving problems, they immediately become enemies of the state. Yeah, like Fred Hampton and MLK and Malcolm X. Well, I'm not necessarily saying that that Malcolm X or MLK were dialectical materialists, but they they stumbled they upon the class there. issue. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. They were as getting there as, as soon as they stumbled into that arena of dialectical materialism with their class analysis, they got took out because that right there is a way to unite people uh, across all lines. You know that's what fucking scares the powers that be. Because they know that if we unite, we can overthrow their shit and stop allowing them to fucking oppress and exploit us. Yeah. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah. Uh, in concentrating the ideas of the masses, we are teaching them the dialectical method. Pointing out the contradictions and how to sort them out. So, like, for example, I'm going to use the example that Bobby Seale used in his book, Seize the Time. Um, the Panthers, when they first started organizing, um, saw the need for a stoplight. And they petitioned the city for one. They did not get it. So, you know, they talked to the people in the area, which they already had been, obviously. That's how they knew it was an issue. Um and then they started directing traffic, you know, guns full, get up, <laughs> yep. directing traffic. And then the city was like, oh, hell no. Nah. And they put up a stoplight. Is it small? <laughs> yes. But it's a place to start. And that's all it takes. That's all it takes. You need something. Mm-hmm. And going, okay, if you're not going to do this thing that we demand as a service for the community for safety we'll do it our fucking selves right and obviously you don't stop there you just continue doing that right building on that right. as they did with their breakfast programs with um clinics their their clinics the whole nine yards yeah uh, as Mao explained, there are many contradictions in the process of development of a complex thing, and one of them is necessarily the principal contradiction whose existence and development determine or influence the existence and development of the other contradictions. It is therefore essential to be able to identify the principal contradiction. This may change as things develop, so we must look to see and base ourselves Upon what is new and arising, we must distinguish between what is arising and what is passing away. Which just reminds me that right now we are watching capitalism in its fucking death throes. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the current event stream will air before this, but we get to talk about the stock market yesterday. Oh, yeah. 
didn't it dip like four and a half percent or something? That's huge. Uh, over over five, over five, Was and then it, it came okay. back like magic. But How? you know, then there's the Fed rate hikes. There's a lot of shit going on economically, and there's a lot of shit going on globally. And tonight should be a fun stream. But of course, that will air before this. So if you missed right. this previous current event stream. Go back and watch it. <laughs> right. The the January 25th current events. Go back and watch it. Um, in the period of declining feudalism and rising capitalism, the phenomenon of nationalism was an important factor. The rising bourgeoisie of different countries staked out their claims to national territory and, quote, their people, based on shared history, language, culture, and economic life. Liberal bourgeois democratic revolutions were very much concerned with national liberation and consolidation, but as capitalism developed, it could not be contained by the boundaries of nations. As Marx and Engels explained in the Communist Manifesto, the bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of reactionists, it is drawn from under the feet of industry the national ground on which it all stood. All old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. They are dislodged by new industries whose introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilized nations. By industries that no longer work up indigenous raw material, but raw material drawn from the remotest zones, industries whose products are consumed not only at home, but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old wants, satisfied by the production of the country, we find new wants, requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations. And I mean, we can see this being embodied in like the, the perpetual exploitation of the global South that's happened for centuries here because, you know, people are, are wanting, you know, spices or minerals, etc., from the global South. Um, even down to like exotic woods from rainforests that we've destroyed. Why to send the shit overseas to somebody else who's just like, oh, I want that. It'll look really nice in my home, you know. Um, and it it would be one thing if it wasn't exploitative, but it is. That's a problem. We're we're exploiting the environment as well as the labor of those people when it comes to to all of those resources. Right. Uh, scrolling here. Give me just one. I'm trying to find if I can find a short clip of yellow parenti discussing this, this one will work. Gotcha. Okay. Coming back to that screen so I can So see. I'm going to play a five-minute video um, of Michael Parenti. Uh, I found this on YouTube. The creator is uh, Financial Footsteps. Um, but, I mean, they don't – this footage is public domain. Yep. And we are using it for educational purposes. We don't own this five-minute video we're about to share. Nobody owns Parenti. Right. So one of the laws of capitalist motion development is this inexorable expansion. And that means expansion into an expropriation of the third world. A process that's been going on for about 400 years, perpetrated by the Portuguese, the Spaniards, the Dutch, the Belgians, the French, the English, and most recently, most successful, most impressively, by the Americans. That is the American. That is by the ruling classes of these countries, not by the ordinary people. The ordinary people simply paid the costs of empire. The ordinary people simply sent their sons off to die on the plains of India or in the jungles of um, 
the Congo or uh, in Latin America, wherever else. But that expropriation of the third world has been going on for 400 years, brings us to another revelation, namely that the third world is not poor. You don't go to poor countries to make money. There are very few poor countries in this world. Most countries are rich. The Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor. But there's billions to be made there, to be carved out and to be taken. There's been billions for 400 years. The capitalist European and North American powers have carved out and taken the timber, the flax, the hemp, the cocoa, the rum, the tin, the copper, the iron, the rubber, the bauxite, the slaves, and the cheap labor. They have taken out of these countries. These countries are not underdeveloped. They're overexploited. Yeah. One of the countries that had a great deal of Western capital in it was Tsarist Russia. Mostly English, French, some German, some American, including one Herbert Hoover, who with Leslie Urquhart, famous British millionaire, owned the Russo-Asiatic Corporation, which if the Russian Revolution hadn't happened, Herbert Hoover would have been one of the richest men in the world. And years later, when he was president of the United States in 1931, when one-third of this country was unemployed, when people didn't have enough to eat, when people were driven to the edge of desperation, President Herbert Hoover said to the San Francisco Examiner, he said, my greatest ambition in life is to see the overthrow of Bolshevism in Russia. There came with the Russian Revolution a break in the fabric of international capitalist history. There now was a country where the unwashed, where the workers of Petrograd and Moscow were actually taking over, where they were actually taking over the land, the labor, the technology, and the resources of their country, where communists were coming in to power. And there's a remarkable correspondence between Secretary of State Lansing and President Woodrow Wilson, in which Lansing says, the Bolsheviks are wanting in political virtue they would preach to the ordinary man that he might elevate himself through political means rather than by dint of hard work. This would be a most unfortunate example to the common man in our country and other countries. They understood what was the threat. The Americans themselves, the American ruling class, had very little cap, didn't have all that much. I told you about Hoover and a few other speculators, other people like that. Um, but they joined in with 14 other nations to invade the Soviet Union to overthrow the socialist government that had just been put in um, after the Tsar was overthrown. That process of invading a revolutionary country is still happening before our eyes. If you want to understand those years after the Russian Revolution, just look at what's going on in Nicaragua. Invasion, either by directly with troops from your own country, or by using surrogate troops, and they use the white armies and the white generals, um, the white guard armies. Embargoes, isolation, withholding food supplies, sabotage, encirclement, uh, refusing diplomatic recognition. These are the, these are the uh, methods that are used, and these are the methods, time-honored methods, that are, that are being used right now by Reagan against another revolutionary government, which is Nicaragua. So it was a little off topic, but not really. Right. He really drove home that that point in a way that you know I was trying to get to, but didn't quite nail it. He nailed it. The third world is not poor; it is overexploited. That's the thing. Like these areas of the world where you know the people are living the poorest have the greatest amount of natural resources that are highly valuable. And instead of the people there benefiting from that, they're being exploited. 
getting piss poor wages that they can barely afford to live on. While some other motherfucker (laughs) makes a fuck ton of money, billions, from taking those resources and reselling them to the bourgeois. This is fucked. This is fucked. There is no excuse for people in those areas to be living so poorly because all of their resources are being raped and taken to other parts of the world for someone else's fucking benefit. It's inexcusable. But that's capitalism for you. That's what capitalism does. Pays people the tiniest minute fucking wage to mine these resources, farm these resources, etc. And then they turn around and make exponential fucking profits off of selling them to wealthy people. And it's fucking disturbing. Agreed. Um, Should be proud. And this is why we do, in fact, need a global revolution. Yes, it needs to start somewhere. If you have the opportunity in your country to have a communist revolution, fucking take it. But in in the end, we do need this to have a domino effect and happen yes, globally. Yes. Of people going, wait a fucking minute. No, we own our labor and our resources. Not you, colonizer. Agreed. Um, so... To, to get back to the text here, uh, hopefully nobody gets offended that we're about to quote Stalin, but... <laughs> but we're about to quote Stalin, so get over it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, by the end of the 19th century, quantitative changes gave rise to the qualitative transformation of capitalism into capitalist imperialism a.k.a. monopoly capitalism, or moribund capitalism, with its own set of major contradictions. Stalin explains, Lenin called imperialism moribund capitalism. Why? Because imperialism carries the contradictions of capitalism to their last bounds, to the extreme limit beyond which revolution begins. Of these contradictions, there are three which must be regarded as the most important. The first contradiction is the contradiction between labor and capital. Imperialism is the omnipotence of the monopolist trust and syndicates of the banks and the financial oligarchy in the industrial countries. In the fight against this omnipotence, the customary methods of the working class trade unions and cooperatives, parliamentary parties and the parliamentary struggle have proved to be totally inadequate. Either You place yourself at the mercy of capital, eke out a wretched resistance as of old and sink lower and lower, or adopt a new weapon. This this is the alternative imperialism puts before the vast masses of the proletariat. Imperialism brings the working class to revolution. Goddamn right it does second contradiction is the contradiction amongst the various financial groups and imperialist powers and for sources of raw materials for foreign territory. Colonialism. Imperialism is the export of capital to the sources of raw materials, the frenzied struggle for monopolist possession of these sources, the struggle for a redivision of the already divided world a struggle waged with particular fury by new financial groups and powers seeking a place in the sun against the old groups and powers which cling tenaciously to what they have seized. This frenzied struggle amongst the various groups of capitalists is notable in that it includes an inevitable element imperialist wars, wars for the annexation of foreign territory. Colonialism. This circumstance, in its turn, is notable in that it leads to the mutual weakening of the imperialists, to the weakening of the position of capitalism in general, to the acceleration of the advent of the proletarian revolution, and to the practical necessity of this revolution. 
And this right here embodies what we're seeing right now of capitalism fucking devouring itself because it's not sustainable. And I will be right back because the mechanic is at my door. Fair enough. The third contradiction is the contradiction between the handful of ruling, quote, civilized nations and the hundreds of millions of the colonial and dependent peoples of the world. Imperialism is the most barefaced exploitation and the most inhumane oppression of hundreds of millions of people inhabiting vast colonies and dependent countries. The purpose of this exploitation and of this oppression is to squeeze out super profits. But in exploiting these countries, imperialism is compelled to build these railways, factories, and mills, industrial and commercial centers. The appearance of a class of proletarians, the emergence of a native intelligentsia, the uh, awakening of national consciousness, the growth of the liberation movement, such are the inevitable results of this policy. The growth of the revolutionary movement in all colonies and dependent countries without exception clearly testifies to this fact. This circumstance is of importance for the proletariat inasmuch as it saps radically the position of capitalism by converting the colonies and dependent countries from reserves of imperialism into reserves of proletarian revolution. In the course of development, one or the other of these three became the principal contradiction, though at all times all three were present. And at times so intertwined as to seem like a knot in which it was difficult to tell which was principal. Overall, though, the second contradiction, contradiction um, being between um, various financial groups and imperialist powers... Leading to two world wars between the imperialist powers and their contention for colonies and spheres of influence and control. The First World War gave rise to the Russian Revolution and the creation of the first successful proletarian socialist state, the Soviet Union. This fundamentally affected the national question as regards the colonial and semi colonial countries, bringing the third contradiction to the fore as a a uh, linked aspect of the world proletarian socialist revolution embodied in the first contradiction. World War II propelled the United States to a position of hegemony in the uh, West and leadership in the imperialist camp and its contradiction with the socialist camp headed by the Soviet Union. This was embodied in the, the, in the Cold War, which ended as a victory for U.S. imperialism and the collapse of the so, uh, socialist camp and restoration of capitalism in the formerly socialist countries. It was not a victory of military conquest, but rather of the rise of modern revisionism internally. Um, of course, this was influenced by the external subversion exerted by the imperialist camp, but dialectics teaches us that the basis of change was the internal contradictions or class struggle under the conditions of socialism. Um, which, I mean, yeah, we've kind of talked about that before. Uh, you know, Gorbachev, Yeltsin, um, both took a line of reformism that cascaded into the fall of the Soviet Union. Obviously, that's very much um, an oversimplification, but yeah. We are at the, uh, the rise of U.S. imperialism. Rise. Yeah, I just found it. I, I saw your red marker there for your uh, cursor. <laughs> Uh, the rise gotcha. of U.S. imperialism to a position of global hegemony, qualitative changes in the global political economy, created the current liberal age. As imperialism is the final stage of capitalism, neoliberalism is the final stage of capitalist imperialism. That's what we're seeing right now here. 
Uh, the imperialist ruling class is driven to validate its global hegemony, faced with the challenge of its new junior partners, Russia and China, as rivals for its dominant position. They are rising while declining due to the cost of maintaining its huge military presence worldwide, i.e. imperialism and colonialism, and failed in new infrastructure. This contradiction leads it to unleash chaos and anarchy on a grand scale, including the threat of a third world war, which was trending like a motherfucker yesterday, and we will be talking about that tonight on the current events stream. Um, so again, since that will air before this, if you missed the current event stream from the 25th, uh, we will be talking about Russia and China. Uh, we will be talking about the the threat of a third world war without trying to make it sound too gloomy because, well, I mean, this is just the state of the world where, where it was trending on Twitter for like a whole fucking day. Um, right. And, and it's not unfounded. It's, right. And it's completely due to that power struggle just described in that paragraph and those contradictions, because when, when the system itself is exploiting everything to the point that is unsustainable, it's going to collapse. It's like a virus that uh, doesn't have enough sense to not kill its host. It, it, it's, it's a bad thing. The, <laughs> you know, I don't know how else to put it. Well, I mean, it's honestly, I, I liken capitalism to cancer. Because yes. they have the same ideology. Yes, yes, because growth, cancer growth will for the sake of growth to grow uncontrolled until it kills the host. So yes, that's actually far more accurate. Thank you. Um, the principal contradiction under neoliberalism is the need of the monopoly capitalist ruling class. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. Yeah, I heard that. Um, but yeah, so in, in terms of climate change, I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing. The ruling class doesn't want to do anything about it. And even the the capitalists who are in favor of climate change are, you know, just pushing eco-fascism or, you know, like green capitalism, if you will. And that's not what we need. We need eco-socialism. Um, and I mean, we need to defund our military too, but I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole right now. We're almost to the end of this paper. Um, so I mean, might as well just read the last paragraph here at best. It could only slow down the collapse of capitalist imperialism through reformism and buy it time. Capitalism is really good at that. Uh, especially here as we've seen. It would still require more substantial revolutionary changes to eliminate class society and private property altogether. We're coming for that toothbrush. No, I kid, I kid, I kid. Your toothbrush is personal property, not private property. When we're talking about private property, we're talking about factories, large plots of land to use for food, um... We're not talking about your house. We're not talking about your toothbrush or your car. We're talking about the means of production. We're talking about the factories, the supply lines, um, or any other point where labor is, um, where our labor value is being stolen. Uh, in other words, handing the reins of all power to the people. 
and get us out of crisis and moving forward with human social evolution. Our demand of all power to the people is therefore a call to the masses to make revolution not a demand we expect the ruling class will accede to. We are dialectical materialists, not romantic idealists. Dare to struggle, dare to win, all power to the people. Um, I just want to give a thank you to Tom Watts. Um, he, Adam on Facebook, man, he's got so much knowledge. This will not be the only piece of his that we dive into. Um, for sure. For sure. Um, I hope that you all enjoyed the episode today and um, join us every Tuesday and keep an eye on our Facebook page for uh, upcoming streams. Um, visit us at forwearemany.org. Uh, try to keep you know up to date with us there. And um, Trish is back. Do you got any closing remarks? Well, the last of that was only one paragraph. So uh, I just I just kind of want to circle back for this last couple of minutes, and I think we'll cut this right about an hour on the dot, probably. I want to go back to the beginning, though. And just kind of like give, yeah, just uh, exactly a reflection because that's that's kind of a lot to unpack. And I mean, he he did really good giving examples, and I want to circle back to that um, dialectics, right? Opposites attract. There is a unity between opposites, but there is also a contradiction and struggle. For example, hot and cold are opposites. Pour some cold milk into a hot cup of coffee, and the cold milk will cool the coffee while the hot coffee warms the milk. A hot fire warms the air in a cabin, while the cold air outside chills the air inside. Let the fire go out, and it'll get cold outside. Um, oh, shit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> inside, sorry. Exactly. And I mean, dialectics is a scientific approach. Um, everything requires balance. Exactly. Everything requires balance. Um, Um, none. Anyway, uh, we do still, um, have some stuff to do to get ready for the stream tonight. So I guess we should probably wrap this up and um, make sure to tune in on Tuesdays and make sure to go to forwearemany.org to keep up to date. And uh, if you really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com slash 
for we are many. And uh, there are the socials for you. I um, I can't wait to dive into more of Tom's writings. Honestly, um, each one is really on point. And uh, I think the next one's probably going to be Individuals and the Collective, which, unlike this, will not be an hour-long piece because that's a much shorter piece. Uh, we might supplement it with some of our own stuff as well, but individualism versus collectivism is a conversation that we need to have soon. Anyway, I'm just rambling at this point. Thank you all for joining us and have a wonderful night.